So I grew up here in Indianapolis, but for the last, uh, there was like four months this past summer and fall that my family moved down to Evansville, Indiana, and it was our first time experiencing Southwest Indiana. It was, it was fun, it was something. Uh, I like Central Indiana better, um, but while we were down there, one thing that we did was in the early fall, we went to an apple orchard. It was a lot of fun. We go often, but I was reminded just, uh, we, w- we went, and as we went with our little children, that makes it a lot of fun. You go to apple orchards for a couple different reasons. Well, one, because apples are delicious, all right? Picking them straight off of the tree is a lot of fun. And then the last reason why I go to apple orchards is my wife's apple crisp. <laughs> Warm with some melting vanilla ice cream on top. <laughs> it's to die for. So we went to the apple orchard. One thing that I've learned in going to apple orchards is that from a distance, you may look at a tree and you look at the apples and you can say, oh man, that, that's gonna have some good apples on it. You, you see a ton of red or green, yellowish green apples and you go up and you pluck off that first one and then you turn it around and all of a sudden it's all brown on the other side. <laughs> like what happened here? <laughs> that looks disgusting. So you chuck it under the tree. You go to another tree, you pluck off another one, you take a look at it and other than you know, maybe this tiny hole down at the bottom. You're like, oh, this looks like a great apple. Put it in your basket. You go take another one, you look over it. This one is perfect, great. I've got two great looking apples. Of course, you're gonna go a little bit further because to make apple crisp, you have to have more than two apples. But let me just take out those two apples out of the basket. You look at them. They look almost identical. They look so similar except there happens to be a little small hole on the bottom of one of them. And if you're tracking with me, you've ever seen an apple with a small hole in it, you know that that means there's a worm inside. You do not want to bite into that apple because though it looks good on the outside, they look almost identical from the outside. The inside is what matters. And if You have a rotten apple with a worm inside. It's eaten its way through. It is rotting that apple. And though it looks good on the outside, it is not good. It is rotten. You should not eat that apple. What we're gonna see today are two offerings. Two offerings presented to God looking almost identical. They look great. However, God is going to make his judgment on what he sees on the inside. In the beginning, uh, just even a chapter ago, we're gonna be referring to Genesis 3 quite a bit this morning, so just get in the mindset of that. Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree and they disobeyed God's direct order, his direct command, and they received the unfortunate reward of that tree. If you remember, that tree was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They received the knowledge that there is good and evil, that Satan was the embodiment of evil and that God the embodiment of good. And they received the fact that there is good and there is evil in the world and that entered entered all of humanity into the age-old battle between good and evil. That battle between good and evil entered into the human race broadly, but into individuals 
specifically. What we'll see today will be both, there are both internal and external battles for your heart and life. There was an internal battle for Cain and Abel's life and we'll see the similarities in four parts. And those four parts are this. This is the outline we're gonna see this morning is, first of all, these battles are for your worship, for your belief, for your repentance, and for your very life. One strategy, though, that I'm going to advise you against is do not fight these battles in your own strength. Depend on Jesus because he alone enables our genuine worship, belief, repentance by welcoming us into his resurrection life. Let's pause real quick and pray. Father, would you meet with us? As we open up your word, would you show us what we are to learn from your word? Bring us into your resurrected life and may we know him who is crucified for our sins and him who is resurrected so that we might have life. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into the meat of these battles specifically and into the meat of our outline, um, let's just begin with the beginning of the, of the passage. In Genesis 4, verse 1, we see the blessing, the blessing of childbearing. But even though there's a blessing here at the beginning, it's almost as though the text is set up for us to understand that there's a rivalry that's a, that, that is a potential. There's a potential rivalry between brothers. Um, Cain is born, and almost immediately after, Abel is born. Now, we don't know from Scripture, it doesn't say specifically that they were twins. However, it does say that Eve conceived and bore Cain, and then it says, and again, Abel was born. So it seems like there might be, however, that's not gonna be something we focus on this morning, but it does seem like there is this potential rivalry between brothers. Before uh, Adam and Eve even knew that, they looked at these sons, these blessings of sons, and looked back to Genesis 3.15 and said, maybe this one. Maybe Cain is the serpent crusher. Maybe Cain or maybe Abel is going to deliver us from this sin that we have brought into the world. And they celebrated, Eve celebrated the birth of Cain. Again, if we just take ourselves back just one chapter, we see relational dysfunction between Adam and Eve and between Adam and Eve and God. The Adam had just blamed Eve for causing him to see sin, but now we see some restoring of relationship there. They restored their relationship back to one of marital intimacy to where they can have a child. And then the Lord just got done cursing Cain and Abel but, and even expelling them from the garden, but now in faith, Eve recognizes her dependence upon the Lord for the birth of her son. She says, I have gotten a man, or I've created a man with the help of the Lord, showing her dependence upon the Lord and producing a child. So the story of the two brothers is going fine until 
there's the scene with the offering. Cain brings an offering of his respective trade. He is a gardener, a keeper of the field, and he brings the fruit of the field. And then uh, Abel, we'll see, is a keeper of sheep and brings of his flock. So let's just pick up in verse three. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And this is where we find the first battle, the battle for your worship. Cain and Abel bringing an offering to God, which is a little bit difficult because we're not given a whole lot of directions uh, or explanation to what these offerings were, what they were explained to do. However, as we read forward in scripture, we can understand what sacrifices and offerings are meant to do and what they're meant to be. Cain and Abel are offering, and this probably isn't the first time that they are offering to the Lord. It says, in the course of time. So probably at one point, they had been making offerings, but this particular time, Moses, the author of Genesis, is looking back and saying this particular time is the crux of what we need to know about Cain and Abel because this is where we see the divergence of worship. There is a battle for their worship. And so though we don't know exactly, we we don't think Cain and Abel came up with this uh, method of worshiping God. They probably learned it from their dad who probably learned it because he was the first human, not from his earthly father, but from God. God probably gave him directions like he does every time he enters into a relationship with someone. He gives directions on how to worship him. And so he gave directions most likely to Adam who taught it to to his sons and Cain and Abel are brought into this. And so we see here a battle for their worship. Look in verse four. It says that Cain, or or sorry, that Abel also brought an offering to the Lord. This shows a similarity in their offerings. Though Cain and Abel's sacrifices look similar on the outside, they were radically different on the inside. You may be here today having just sang some great theologically solid songs about the glory of the gospel yet you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, what, am I, did I really just worship? My worship really does look like theirs, but what does the inside look like? Or they look like they're worshiping much better than me. Am I actually worshiping? How do I know? And as the Christian song from the mid-2000s goes, When I look around, everybody seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover that I don't belong, so I'll tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. And so with a painted grin, I play the part again so everyone will see me the way that I see them. The outside might look the same, but the inside is what matters. 
we see this because one of the explanation of the differences might be in the descriptions of the offerings themselves. Look back at verse four. Cain brings simply the fruit of the ground, but Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Both of these descriptions uh, alluding to these are the most valuable possessions that Abel would have had as a shepherd. The firstborn and the fat portions was the most important, most valuable part of the lamb. This explanation just points to the different attitudes of the worshipers. And this is where God looks first. God looks first at the worshiper and then the worship. Look, look again at the end of verse four. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So the order is important here. God looks at Abel and then his offering. God looks at you. God knows you. He sees you. He doesn't first see your worship. Know that. He doesn't first see what you do. He sees you. And he loves you. And he is looking. Believe he is looking for any reason to accept your worship. He is looking for trust. He is looking for faith. He is looking for dependence on him for your very life. He is looking for that. What we learn from this is that the heart of the worshiper determines the acceptance of the worship. The heart of the worshiper determines the acceptance of the worship. How do we know that Abel's offering was by faith. Well, in Hebrews 11:4, we read that it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So we see that it was by faith that Abel offered this. It was by faith and not by sight. And what we'll see throughout uh, the rest of Genesis. And as Sunday schools are going through the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books, there is this battle between internal and external, between walking by faith and walking by sight. And this battle, I'm sure Moses, who is writing this, is keenly aware that they have just been given a whole long list of uh, offering directions, of directions on how to worship God. And he knows, keen to know, that their hearts are what is most important. That though the outside may look great, the inside is what is most important. And so as you read your Bible, is it a, just merely a checklist item? Did it? Or do you sit with God? Being with God before doing for God. So what's most important or what's firstly important is your worship. In your worship, are you joyful as you give generously? Do you have joy as you give? And when you serve, is love your motivation? Cain knew that the right thing to do was to bring an offering. So he did that. But knowing something and believing something are two very different things. Belief is the next battleground. First, uh, let's look at verse five. 
for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So the second battleground is the battle for your belief. Battle for your belief. Knowing is different than believing, but knowing should lead to believing. And while many people know what is right, I've heard it, uh, they, they often act contrary. We have to often act contrary to what we know to be right. I've heard it said that it's actually impossible to act contrary to what you believe. It's easy to act contrary to what you know but it's impossible to act contrary to what you believe. Your actions reflect uh, what you really believe. A couple examples of this. You know that getting an extra hour of sleep will actually make you feel way better for work tomorrow, Um, but you show through your actions that maybe just one more episode of my favorite show will make me happier. I'll be okay tomorrow. You show what you believe. You know when you see somebody who is in need, I should go help them. Yet when you don't, you show that you believe they're okay. Somebody else will help them. I don't really have to. You know, students, that you should do your homework ahead of time. And all the parents say, amen. You were there once too, okay. Um, You know that you should do your homework ahead of time, yet you show when you do your homework, I mean, right at the last hour, that you believe you can get it done and everything will be fine, that you'll remember it after not doing it early. These core beliefs often reveal, are revealed by our actions. And we see very clearly in this scene that truth. Cain offers a sacrifice, one that is meant to represent allegiance, trust, and atonement because he was a sinner. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, are both sinners. So they're offering a sacrifice to God, saying, God, I trust you. I trust that you will provide forgiveness through this sacrifice. Yet when his offering is not accepted, his response is telling His response is telling. Cain did not go back to God really quick and say, oh, God, uh, how might I offer you an acceptable sacrifice? Maybe I forgot something here. Will you remind me? He doesn't humbly seek resolution with God. I think that's because Cain did not believe what the sacrifice was meant to symbolize. He did not believe what the sacrifice was meant to symbolize. Cain did not believe that this sacrifice could actually cause God's forgiveness of sin. His anger towards God showed his unbelief that the offering would actually make him right with God. When Cain gets angry and his face falls, this is not an act of humility or godly sorrow. He turns away from God because he has hatred for God. He is showing where his allegiance lies. The scales of the serpent are showing themselves in his heart. Cain's response might look identical to the tax collector that Jesus talked about, who in the open public square of the temple could not even lift his eyes toward heaven. 
downcast and in despair, the tax collector beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Yet the tax collector's worship on the inside showed that he believed God would be merciful to him, that God would forgive him. Brought reconciliation, Jesus declares that this man actually went home right with God. Yet Cain, his face falls, showing his unbelief that the sacrifice symbolizing forgiveness not really work. Every day that you wake up, there is a battle waging for what you believe. Will you believe the truth about what God says about himself, yourself, or even your neighbor? Your actions will always reveal what you truly believe in your relationship with God. Will you believe that in Christ you are fully forgiven or will you continue to live to do things so that God will maybe one day forgive you? Will you believe that you are fully loved or will you believe that you are unlovable? Will you believe that you are fully accepted by the Father or will you continue to just go to church, pray, read your Bible, serve, give, do all these things because maybe one day God will fully accept me. He sees you. He sees you first and he knows you. And he invites belief. We all have areas in our heart of unbelief. That's where the spirit is working to sanctify us. But what will you do with that unbelief? Will you go to a friend to help soothe you? Will you depend on your own self-will to get through it? You go to YouTube to rationalize and get an answer for why you feel this way? There was a man with a demon-oppressed son who approached Jesus with his son. And when Jesus questioned his belief, this man said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus questioned his belief. He said, I believe, but man, there are still parts of me that don't believe. Jesus, help me, help that unbelief. Go to Jesus with your unbelief. As you see actions in your life, go to Jesus, dig deep into your own heart and ask him, show me, show me, Lord. I don't want to be like Cain. I don't want to be unconvinced and disbelieving. So Cain responded in anger and despondency and downheartedness, his face falling in anger. But look at God's response in verse six and seven. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God does not immediately condemn Cain, but rather gives him an opportunity to repent of his unbelieving worship. This is the next battle for your heart, the battle for your repentance. The battle for your repentance. God does not respond to Cain's faithless worship in condemnation 
first. He began by asking him a question, a couple questions. What a compassionate approach. He does that with you. He's giving Cain a clear opportunity to be honest with him about his anger. And in so doing, God is actually inviting Cain back into worshiping God. He's inviting him back into worshiping the one who can fully satisfy him, who can bring him comfort. But in that invitation, there's a warning. He says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, to pounce on you, to, to, uh, to devour you. The battle for Cain's worship has an enemy whose desire is to destroy Cain. Cain does not heed God's warning. Rather, he desires sin's deceptive reward. Sin's deceptive reward. He desires this. And what is that reward? It's comfort and control. Sin's deceptive reward of comfort and control. It's the deception that if I act out of my pain, I will receive the reward of comfort. Or, if I do not like the rules that God has laid out, I can take control and make my own rules and live by them. This reward is deceptive because the best comfort that sin can offer is a fake comfort. Sin is not your friend. It is your enemy. It wants to destroy you. And the most control you will ever take is merely the control of how you rebel against God. Because once you sin, the consequences are out of your control. I've heard it said, actually, a pastor told me once that the only opportunity you have to control the consequences of your sin is before you commit the sin. It's the only time you have to control the consequences of your sin is before, so don't do it. So I think God is telling Cain here, sin is crouching. It's right there. It wants to devour you. But after Cain is consumed with rage against God, he rises up like a snake and strikes his brother, killing him. Question may come to our mind, well, why? Why would Cain, why was that the response? Well, John actually gives us the answer in 1 John 3, 12. He says, why did he murder him? Well, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He was of the evil one showed himself to be a seed of the serpent by showing his enmity towards Abel. Enmity, Pastor Justin uh, defined last week as a desire to kill. We see the ultimate desire to kill the seed of the woman in the killing of Jesus on the cross, but here even we get a small picture, a small shadow of what that looks like, and, and we see Cain hating God and that Enmity against the seed of the woman rises up. Of someone who is living by faith rises up and kills Cain or Abel. So God then comes to Cain and asks him a very similar question to what he asked Adam and Eve when he found them in the garden. He said to Adam and Eve, Where are you? To Cain, he comes and says, Where is your brother? Where is Abel? God does not thunder judgment but he invites honesty. He invites 
repentance. But it makes every bit of sense why Cain would lie to God. He does not want to be seen. He doesn't want to be known for who he really is. Going back to his faithless offering, Cain does not believe what the offering symbolized. He does not believe in the forgiveness from God for his sin. Well, why is that? Because in our relationship with God, for our honesty with God flows out of forgiveness from God. Honesty to God flows out of our forgiveness from God. Maybe it's difficult for you to be honest with God because of shame, because of guilt, maybe even fear. Shame lies to you and says that it would be better to just conceal it. Guilt condemns you and says there's no way you're gonna be forgiven. Fear drives you into saying the punishment is gonna be too painful. It's gonna be too uncomfortable. I can't, I can't deal with that right now. But if you believe that you have been forgiven by God, fully forgiven by God, then you will reject the messages of shame, of guilt, and of fear. And you will be honest with God because you have already been forgiven by him. There's nothing you've done that he doesn't know about. He's already forgiven you. So go to him, be honest. In 1 John 1, where it talks about confessing our sins and and God is faithful to uh, forgive us, right after that in the second chapter of 1 John, talks about how uh, the confessing to God actually draws us into a desire to walk in the light and draws us into fellowship with fellow believers. Fellowship with fellow believers, that means that we can be honest with God and honest with other people. Doesn't mean that you need to go around to everybody every single person here and confess to them your deepest, darkest secrets. However, if you don't have at least one person, one other fellow Christian that you are confessing sin to, then you are not finding the healing that is there for confession. James 5 talks about that if you confess your sins to one another, there's healing. And so go to repentance. Don't flee from the forgiveness of God. Rather, believe it because it's real. We find ourselves often in the midst of a sin cycle for decades and we think there's no way that God could forgive all of the sin we've committed. Or we think that our reputation will be ruined if that gets out, if our sin is brought into the light. There's no way we'll find forgiveness from others. Maybe it's a lack of discipline or quick temper or an insulting tongue. You probably feel terrible. Possibly even despair about how much and how often you have failed God. Please know and believe this, that God isn't afraid of your feelings. He isn't afraid of your feelings of guilt and of shame 
in a fear. He isn't afraid of your sin. He welcomes you to bring it to him. So go to Jesus. When God approached Cain, Cain allowed his feelings of enmity that he was concealing to overcome him. So he lies to God, he conceals it. John Calvin once said, let us hence learn to rouse up all our feelings whenever God comes forth. Not that we might flee to a distance from him, but that we might reverently receive his word so that he may afterwards appear to us a kind and reconciled father. Calvin implores us to understand the mercy and forgiveness of God for our sins and not to run from him, but to run to him. Cain loses the battle for his worship, his belief, and his repentance because he submitted to his enemy. And the final battle, which Cain lost, but which has been fought already, is the battle for his very life. And there's a battle for your very life. Your all-encompassing life, body, soul, worship, belief, repentance. There is a battle for that that has been waged. And in verse 12, we see that, voice, that Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and justice. Cain's action brought upon him a curse. In chapter three, in verse 17, the ground is actually cursed because of Adam. But Cain is cursed from the ground. Where Cain's sin was committed, that is where his punishment came from. His punishment was essentially this, that his farming would be fruitless and his wandering would be endless. That his farming would be fruitless and his wanderings would be endless. Why are these two the curses that God gives to Cain? Well, because these are two blessings that Cain was able to experience after Eden and before his murder. He was able to experience the strength from the ground. He was a farmer. He got to grow food and enjoy the produce of the land, the land that he called home, because it was the land that, where God's presence was. It's the land where his family was. Now these two blessings have wrought because of the destroying effects of sin. They turned from blessings into curses. Cain then declares in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. This complaint is new to humanity. Such disdain for God did not even come from Adam and Eve, but here Cain, his anger for God leads him to make this complaint my punishment is greater than I can bear. I don't, think that's, I don't think you're a good judge. That's too much. Even though Cain makes this declaration out of disgust and anger, every human actually can look at the punishment for our sin, which is death and separation from God's presence, and give a similar response. Why? Because sin will cost you your life. Sin will cost you your life. It does not show favorites. Sin will cost you your life. And that punishment is greater than we can bear. So, someone I once counseled, we'll call him Stanley, not his real name, was a resident in a hospital in a different state. 
And I, I must admit, his life was pretty difficult. He pulled 36-hour shifts regularly with only eight hours in between. And so his sleep wasn't just inconsistent, it was almost non-existent. On top of that, his wife worked in a different state and only saw her about twice a month. His supervisors were never encouraging, constantly told him to do better. Fellow residents seemed to be doing just fine and so he wondered what was wrong with himself. Stanley told me that though he was raised in a Christian home and went to a solid Christian university, God felt distant. God felt distant. He didn't really know what to think about God anymore. He had developed an addiction to pornography, and he took control of his human relationships by having an affair on his wife. His relationship with God, his wife, and his work were in, were in shambles. They were a wreck. Come to find out, he had developed an addiction to drugs that made him feel alive and gave him comfort. He told me, I feel hopeless. You may think I am nothing like Stanley. But just two years ago, he was sitting in a church just like yourself. And apart from God's grace, the consequences for our sin cause us to say exactly what Cain did. My punishment is greater than I can bear. I feel hopeless. Brothers and sisters, may be sitting here today feeling like an irredeemable, rotten apple. You look around you and think to yourself, I must be the only rotten apple in this place. Everyone else looks so joyful and genuine. Please believe that there are others out there who are like you, who have hidden in the shadows for a long time too who look great on the outside for a long time, but on the inside are torn up over their sin and haven't taken the step forward to repent. Cain believed that he was too rotten, too far from God, so he concealed it. And James shows that concealed sin leads from desire to sin to death. And the message that Satan wants you to believe today is that you can't heal a rotten apple. But that right there is where the gospel comes in, in the experience of our sludge to sin. The gospel comes in and shows the solution to our rotten hearts. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to look good with your inside torn up. Jesus destroyed the power of sin and death and the decaying effects of it. 1 John 3.10 says that the reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. This promise, this is the promise of Genesis 3.15, that though the serpent will do his best to thwart the redemptive work of God, the seed of the woman would rise up and crush the head of the serpent. Though Cain had slain Abel, God, as it were, resurrected this line of the seed of the woman from Seth, who, whose name means substitute, so he was a substitute of sort for Abel. See, from his line, names like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and Jesus. 
When Jesus enters onto the stage of humanity, the hearts of all who walk by faith exploded in celebration for someone was here to destroy the rotting and decaying effects of sin. Jesus actively obeyed God in every instance. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross, which you and I deserve, and he rose up victorious over the grave, conquering sin and its rotting, decaying effects. And he mediated a new covenant. And the author, which is a new kind of relationship, one that was built on his perfect life, not on you and I's works. In Hebrews 12, 24, the author says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If Abel's blood cried out for justice and vengeance, Jesus's blood speaks the better word of mercy, final forgiveness, and resurrection. God the Father is inviting you into the better blood of Jesus, to be washed by it, to be cleansed by it, to be given a new identity in it. Don't be like Cain and run away from God, especially a God who offers safety from the effects of sin, the punishment that is too great for you to bear. So run to Jesus. Run to Jesus right now with whichever of these battles you are facing this morning, go to him. He is constantly inviting us into genuine worship, belief, and repentance. After you leave here, maybe you just wanna take out your phone and take out the alarm and, and put an alarm at nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, and just say, go to Jesus. Have that as the description, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus right now. Take to him whatever's on your heart, believing it, nothing will take him by surprise. And that his mercy is already covered, whatever it is. Maybe it's go to Jesus, maybe it's Jesus, I need you. Take your need to him. This morning as we take communion together, if your heart is not depending on God, sin is crouching. So go to Jesus. All you have to do is to take your need to him for his abundant mercy and grace. If you're not walking by faith this morning, know that sin is crouching. Go to Jesus. Say to him, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. If you're not sure if you're worshiping genuinely, sin is crouching. So go to Jesus. Ask him to change you from the inside out. Go to Jesus like your life depends on it, because it does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Without it, and without its redemptive plan laid out in it, our punishment would be too great for us to bear. Thank you for sending Jesus, the son of Adam, the new and better Adam, the son of Seth, who came as a substitute for us. Seth, a substitute for Abel, and now Jesus, a substitute for us. We shouldn't have a substitute. We should bear the penalty that our sins deserve. Yet somehow, through your grace, through your justice, we don't receive it. Jesus received it, and so we thank you for him. Has that in the battles that we face this week, that we would go to Jesus, because Jesus, we need you.
We need you every step this week. Would you be with us? May we believe that your sacrifice, which symbolizes forgiveness, is true, is right, is real, that we have that forgiveness from the Father. And as we take communion, may we not just take it because it's just something else to do, but may we take it and believe what it represents. Jesus, you have shed your blood. You have died. Your body died. You took our sin upon you. And you have made us right before God. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.